Hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding and thanks for listening. It's early evening in New York City, March 1831. The street outside the hotel heaves with people queuing restlessly. You clasp your parents' hands and walk between them to join the crowd. A well-dressed man emerges from the entrance. He whistles sharply. The crowd ripples and falls expectantly silent. Ladies and gentlemen, he shouts, thank you for your patience and now it's showtime. Your parents exchange excited glances and your mother squeezes your hand. As a 12-year-old raised in Manhattan, you've been to your fair share of performances. Not all of them particularly interesting, if you're honest. This time, your parents have been strangely mum about what you're going to be seeing. You're not all that excited. But you have overheard whispered snatches of conversation at home all week. Exotic. Thrilling. One of a kind. You don't see what the big deal is, except for this unusually big crowd. Then you spot a colorful poster. You are mesmerized by the image. It looks like two young men, clearly with two different heads and bodies, but connected just below the neck. That can't be right, you think. You stare and squint at the poster until the line snakes around a corner and you can't see it anymore. It must be some kind of a trick, an illusion. Oh, father you ask. Was that a magician? On the poster back there? Is this a magic sh Your voice cuts off when a man holding a stack of pamphlets shoves one into your hands. Your father gestures to the pamphlet and nods. Told you it'd be something special. Like nothing you've ever seen before. You look at the pamphlet. It's the young men from the poster again. Or is it really two men? You've definitely never seen anything like this before. You read the caption. Back in America, Chang and Ang, the Siamese youths. See the twins in the flesh. Siamese twins? What's that? You feel a rush of curiosity, and suddenly you can't wait for the show to start. Hey there. I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. On today's episode, welcome to the sometimes troubling and always fascinating world of the Victorian freak show. I'm chatting with Dr. John Wolfe, expert on all things Victorian and, well, freakish in the working lives of performers who were designated freaks because they deviated from Victorian society's normative expectations. There's shocking exploitation galore, but also, dare I say, inspiring examples of freak show performers who turn the tables and seize control of their own careers and fortunes. So grab some popcorn, kick on back, and feast your ears on a bonafide Victorian freak show. John is a historian drawn to the slightly weird, more marginal and salacious aspects of the past. He earned a PhD in history at Goldsmiths, University of London, and a BA and MA in history from the University of Cambridge. He loves human stories that eliminate hitherto unknown or understudied aspects of the past. And that means, of course, he's an expert on the Victorian freak show and the Victorian age more generally. John co-wrote Stephen Fry's Victorian Secrets, has written his own book titled The Wonders, Lifting the Curtain on the Freak Show, Circus and Victorian Age, and has written for The Guardian and numerous history magazines. He's a frequent guest on radio shows and podcasts and does on and off screen TV work as well. John loves to travel, has lived and worked in India, and he and his wife currently reside in London with a cat, fish, rabbits, and African land snails. And I'm going to ask him about that before we start, don't worry, because I, I want to know what makes a land snail from Africa special. 
Today, John is going to take us under the big top to get up close and personal with some of the more colorful characters of the Victorian era, which, you know, it doesn't have a particularly racy reputation, so I am really looking forward to hearing about this. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Honestly, would you tell us about the snails? Before we start, I'm genuinely curious. <laughs> Do they wander free? No, well, they've got their own kind of cage and it's all set up appropriately and they burrow down into the soil and um, occasionally I'll get them out and, you know, have them crawl around uh, the body. But um, no, on the whole, they... That's so nice. I, You know, I have to say, I having lived in the UK, I, I, my only experience with an animal that I imagine to be at all like a snail is the slugs that leave those silvery trails overnight sometimes, and they don't look cuddly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's probably a stretch to say that African land snails are cuddly, um, but I find them kind of cute. I mean, they're massive as well. They're not like your typical garden snails. Well, how big? How well, big they're are like they? 20, size, 20 times uh, as big as your, your typical garden snail. Um, oh my gosh, they oh yeah, sound so cool. Yeah, yeah, they're very cool. And like, to be honest, I sometimes bribe kids when I'm uh, doing various talks on, you know, Victorian history or the freak show. And to kind of maintain interest, I'll occasionally get out the African land snails just as a, a slight diversion. So they, they've come in useful as well. I love it. It sort of takes you out of the quotidian, immediately giant snails that are friendly. All right. That is, that's so cool. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so, all right. We're here to talk about the Victorian age, England and the freak show, but let's, let's just get a little background first, if you wouldn't mind. So what, what, what was Victorian England all about and what about it gave rise to the freak show specifically? Well, it's a great question. And I think in a way, the, the word that would best sum up the Victorian age is change. You know, this was a period of urbanization, industrialization, modernity, transport revolutions, communications revolutions. It was a really um, a packed period where different developments and changes were occurring. And this all kind of helped uh, ferment the freak show and the entertainment industry more generally. So you had the rise of the middle classes, the introduction of the Saturday uh, half-day holiday, so people had more time to spend on leisure, they had more money to spend on leisure, um, and you started to see in this period the growth of, of an entertainment industry, and, and within that the growth of the freak show. And you know what was great okay. about the freak show was it kind of, at this period, while there was all of this change, there was a massive desire to classify and to understand the world in which the Victorians operated. So this was a time when in the eight, in 1830s, you had the term scientist was introduced. In the 1840s, notions of normality and abnormality entered the English language. Um, and the freak really kind of discombobulated what was normal, what was abnormal, and sort of disrupted a lot of structural dualisms that were being formed at the time, male, female, animal, human. Um, so there was a kind of real cultural phenomenon that was going on in the Victorian age, uh, which the freak show capitalized on. Um, and this helped ensure uh, its massive popularity. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. That is really interesting. All right. Great. Well, <laughs> with that background, it would be terrific if you could just drop us right down into the day and a life of one of these performers. What did their day start out like and what, what was on their mind? What were they worried about? Well, you know what, I think the best way of approaching this question is to take a very specific example, because the thing about the freak show is it was massively diverse and different freak performers had different um, experiences. But if I may, I, I'd like to focus on um, two brothers known as Chang and Eng, and the year is 1829, the month is November, and the location is Piccadilly, London. Now, at the what was known as the Egyptian Hall, which was like this big exhibition hall, also known as the Home of Mystery. In November 1829, Ooh. you had like hundreds of people queuing up, holding their half-crown entrance fee, uh, desperate to see um, what were known as the Siamese twin brothers, Chang and Eng, 18 years old, joined by a ligament just below the breastbone that was two inches thick and four inches long. Now, as the kind of 
Hugh was building up along Piccadilly. Chang and Eng at this time uh, were kind of resentful. So they had just come from New York to England. They'd been placed in steerage of a ship while their managers had been placed in first class. So they were kind mm. of, yeah, you know, they hadn't been treated that well. Um, they'd been uh, exposed to medical men who had conducted some experiments, had explored their body, you know, very interested in uh, the conjoined twins. And they didn't really speak English. There was kind of cultural shock that was going on. So they were slightly confused and slightly resentful as they were. I mean, it sounds like the Middle Passage from Africa, people stolen into enslavement and, and transported in some ways. Well, you know what? It's not that dissimilar. I mean, they had been discovered about four years earlier, 1824, um, in Siam, which is today's Thailand, and they'd essentially been exchanged for money. So their mother had been paid $500 um, with the right to exhibit her 18-year-old um, children across America and Europe. And they weren't paid a, a salary. So, you know, it's not actually too dissimilar from that kind of... So it was like a, a flat fee buyout? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm so curious, but the, the notion of them being discovered like, like fashion models or something, I mean, how, how did that happen? How were they discovered? Well, it's funny because one of the amazing things about studying the Victorian freak show is the materials and the sources that we have, you always have to question the veracity because they were made for uh, public consumption. But the story goes that they were out um, fishing and they lived in a small fishing village just outside of, of Bangkok. And a British merchant um, saw them fishing in the boat and was amazed to see, you know, these two twins who were conjoined um, just below the breastbone. Um, and he partnered up with an American trader, a guy called Captain Coffin, um, and they kind of agreed to exhibit Chang and Eng uh, in the West, but they needed the consent of their mum uh, and also the king uh, of Thailand. The thought well. that so the that's what would come to their mind when they, they witnessed this incredible sight. They've never seen anything like this. And their first thought is, let's take them across the ocean away from their family and exhibit them for profit. Yeah, I know, shocking. And the thing is, I mean, it wasn't that uncommon at the time. You had lots of merchants, missionaries as well, who were going into distant lands and bringing back goods, bringing back people to be displayed uh, or exhibited um, or goods that were sold or even put on exhibition. So, you know, this was actually really quite common at the time. There was this kind of transportation of goods and people um, from east to west, and uh, Chang and Eng kind of fitted into to that context. So they were perceived essentially as, you know, an ability, an opportunity uh, for making money. Wow, yeah, it's, it's like so, classic colonialism, isn't it? Classic colonialism. All right, great. So um, now that we've sort of gotten a sense of how how they ended up in this i'm going to call it predicament mm. um, it doesn't sound like it was particularly enjoyable for them let's walk through their day as sort of hour by hour as you can sure so they got up um they probably would have had a bit of breakfast and they would have started to prepare for their first show which like i say in november 1829 was at the egyptian hall in piccadilly london it was opening at midday. So they probably would have had a bit of breakfast and prepared themselves. There was a bit of resentment, as I said, they had been mistreated. Doctors and surgeons had been manhandling them uh, a couple of nights before in a private show. And they were gearing up for this um, exhibition. And so they would be kind of behind the scenes as punters flowed into the Egyptian hall. And you know, it was kind. It was known as the Egyptian Hall because it was built in the Egyptian style of architecture, and punters would kind of they go through the front door, and there'd be these statues of Egyptian gods um, at the front, and they'd walk inside this impressive, expansive space, which was known as the Great Room, and there was a big kind of dome ceiling um, above them, which beamed light uh, into the space, and Chang'an would be on the sidelines. By this time, they'd done a few performances. They'd performed in tents in Boston. So they weren't too, they weren't too kind of uh, nervous about uh, performing, but this was certainly a more kind of illustrious space for them. Um, 
And the whole show would begin with their manager, a guy called uh, James Hale, introducing these amazing twins, the Siamese twin brothers. And he'd talk a little bit about their lives. He'd talk a little bit about their country of Siam. And no doubt he'd be kind of de degenerating it a little bit as a kind of- Yeah, I was how, how good was his information? You have to yeah, wonder rubbish. where he got it. <laughs> <laughs> and he was sort of feeding off kind of Orientalist notions of the violent dysfunction. Oh, no doubt. East. Yeah. So he would kind of present them and then they would um, come in uh, in front of the audience um, to begin the show. And, you know, the show began with them conversing with the audience. It was a very sort of uh, two-way type of performance. And they, they'd be asked a whole series of questions. Um, and I actually got some of the questions that they were asked in, in their exhibition. Uh, you if do. You'd like to hear. I do, oh, yeah. I share? Found... <laughs> please, please so they've share. Just, they've just come on. They're about to perform. They've been introduced, you know, they, their country of origin has been slagged off a little bit, they're a bit resentful, and then they're bombarded with questions, which include, um, do you enjoy being uh, joined together? To which they answered, there is no choice, according to the doctors. We try to make the most of our situation. Another question, do you mind people staring at you and asking you questions? <laughs> <laughs> to which they responded, we know we are different and people are curious. It is a way of earning a living and we are grateful. So this was the kind of like back and forth conversation they'd be having. So they'd be asked these series of questions um, and then they'd begin their performance. Now their performance- so that wasn't the performance. That wasn't even the performance. That was just the conversation. That was kind of warming up the audience, if you like. So to make the audience feel okay about staring, that they're grateful? Yeah, exactly. Paternalism 101. Wow. I know, right? <laughs> and so much of this is about kind of infantilizing the twins. You know, they were perceived and presented as exotic freaks. So right. by kind of showing them as docile and grateful, you were also kind of relaxing the audience that they weren't going to kind of suddenly attack. <laughs> right, that they wouldn't attack and that this was okay. They weren't doing anything wrong. Exactly. So the, and this is a key point, you know, the, this exhibition was respectful. Um, medical men had testified to the reliability and the respectability of this show. And you had middle class people attending, men, women and children, professionals. So, you know, there was a diverse um, uh, array of uh, people in the audience. And this was not kind of overtly shocking or titillating, although there was a little bit of titillation get on to um it was a respectable show in respectable victorian london yeah you need that right yeah you need that but then with the respectability comes the sensation and so after they'd answered all of these intrusive questions they begin performing and that included acrobatics somersaults and an early form of badminton where you know they each have a miniature racket and they'd be hitting this shuttlecock back and forth. And, you know, bearing in mind, because of their connect connecting ligament, they're only about four to five inches apart. So it was really quite an impressive display of agility and speed. And, you know, the audience would be clapping and cheering. Um, they very possibly, they did this in Boston, they'd pick up audience members in chairs and kind of, you know, move them around the room just to show off their strength. So they were demonstrating their ability to work together as conjoined twins and you know, the crowd went wild. <laughs> That's such an image. Crazy image, right? Um, yeah. And then the final part of the show, it doesn't end there. It goes from you know, the audience engaging with questions, observing the spectacle and then touching. Um, and the- Touching. Twin, touching, yeah. So the twins could be manhandled by the curious after their performance, who invariably went to their connecting ligament, which they poked and prodded. And there's even a report that um, Chang and Eng once scolded a spectator for touching their ligament with cold hands. Um, so, you know, a tactile experience in the freak show as well. Um, I just don't think about tactile experiences in any venue in Victorian life. Was that extraordinary? You know what? It wasn't. I mean, I found loads of examples. There was um, a, a person of short stature, a nine-year-old girl, did, uh, billed as the Sicilian fairy. And you could observe her for a shilling. And for an extra shilling, you could pick her up and hold her and carry her around, which by all accounts, she absolutely hated. 
Um, so this was by no means exceptional at all. It was one of the kind of appeals of the freak show is you're not just a passive observer, you're an active participant who can hold the flesh um, of the freak performers on stage. It was deemed acceptable in the context of the freak show, but would any of these respectable matrons, for example, accepted one of their daughters being picked up and carried around by a stranger for a fee? No, exactly. Absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> Different rules in the, in the freak show, I'm afraid. Wow. That is really something. And so how many shows a day would they do? They'd probably do about two or three. So the Egyptian hall was open from uh, midday till dusk um, and they would be worked hard. So in the seven months that they were uh, performing at the Egyptian hall uh, in London, um, it was a hundred thousand spectators came to see them. It's a huge amount of thousand, a hundred thousand. They were a massive uh, spectacle um, and in many ways, and I, I talk about this uh, in my book, this show at the Egyptian Hall was kind of the first modern freak show. And by freak show, I mean an organized, theatrical, respectable and commercial display of uh, difference. Um, and this was kind of the start of the Victorian phenomenon uh, of the freak show. Much longer routes, but we can kind of see the the beginnings here and you know inside the exhibition they had a what was known as exhibition pamphlets that included pictures of the twins and stories about their life and their country and medical testimonials as well and that sold 2,000 copies in seven months. Oh so they had programs too for sale just like today when you absolutely programs for sale posters bill posters plastered all around London um yeah so that was that was their show and that's how they were treated. And, you know, they, they weren't overtly happy about it um, as 18-year-old uh, conjoined twins. I can imagine. It sounds really quite horrible. And you mentioned this crazy volumes of, of spectators and uh, you said they each paid a half crown to get in and that people bought programs and posters. So uh, how much money was produced by this great commercialized freak show and who benefited did chang and i receive any further payment beyond the 500 dollar odd licensing fee their parents had been paid well so that was great question because that was the source of massive contention and it led to a big change in their relationship uh with their with their managers because initially they received diddly squat um their mom had received 500 dollars, and now they were at liberty to be displayed and the money generated from the show went to the uh, managers of Chang and Eng. So they saw nothing. Um, but what happened was after their display in London, they traveled around the British Isles. They went back to America and started traveling um, across the States as kind of itinerant freak show performers. Um, and because they weren't getting paid, because their managers wouldn't even allow them to uh, increase their expenditure, um, and because they were overworked and homesick, they were fed up. So when they became 21 years old, on the age of maturity, they cancelled this contract that they had signed um, with their, along with their mother, and they became, as they wrote in their own letter, their own men. So they became, they went from sort of freak performers to freak businessmen and performers and showmen as well. So they took control of their show. And how did that work? At this point, were they acclimated enough to understand what they needed to do to benefit from their otherness the way others had for years? Yeah, so these brothers were incredibly shrewd. Um, And by 1832, when they split from their managers, They had learned English to a much better degree. They were aware of the mistreatment that they had suffered. And they knew that their bodies sold, to put it bluntly. Um, And so what they they did was they hired their own um, help. They kept account books detailing all their expenditure and everything they they earned. And they continued to travel as their own bosses, as their own men, and they managed to save $10,000 by 1839, which is a lot of money. 10000 Huge amounts. It actually made them the richest men in uh, Wilkes County, North Carolina, 
where they chose to settle in 1839 and leave the freak show behind them. Uh, albeit the richest men in the county. Yep, in Wilkes County, North Carolina. Um, I kind of love the, that. Good for it's them. Good, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> they turned the tables. And what was so cool, sure did. if you look at their exhibition pamphlet, when they were being kind of displayed by Western managers, they were portrayed as backward. Their country was dis, um, described as, as despotic and violent. But when they become their own men in 1832, they commission a new exhibition pamphlet and they essentially say, hey, we didn't know all the shit they were speaking about us back in 1829. So this is a true pamphlet um, about our true lives. And it bigged them up. So it said they actually came, you know, they were, they were merchants in Siam and they had images of themselves in Western attire in respectable backgrounds wow. as opposed to exotic oriental backgrounds. So they really changed the nature of their display as well and kind of put a big sort of middle finger up to their previous managers by saying, no, you know, we're smart, we're shrewd, we're respectable and we're going to keep our own money. Thank you very much. That's awesome. I love that. And, and they, they also sort of um, set, set the, the cultural record straight too, which I think is, is just as important that, no, we're not these animals on display that you can come and poke and prod and transport around and say whatever you want about. We're, we're human beings. We come from this really incredibly ancient and respectable and interesting culture ourselves. And we want you to know about that too. Yeah, totally. And I mean, one of the things that I always like to mention is there's an important distinction because, you know, I use this term freak and freak show. And I think in the 21st century, that rightly makes us feel a bit uncomfortable sometimes. Um, and I draw yeah. this, you know, it's kind <laughs> of like, ask you about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit uncomfortable. Um, and so I draw this distinction between the freak and the freak performer. Now, the freak is a social construction, a public persona that's performed and embodied on stage, as opposed to the pr freak performer, who's a private individual who has a life off stage. And what you see in the early career of Chang and Eng is that their freak construction um, shifted as their lives off stage as freak performers changed. So as I said, initially their freak construction was all about them being exotic, racially different freaks. Um, but when they became their own men off stage and took control of their own lives off stage, their freak construction on stage shifted to them being much more respectable. And, you know, believe it or not, they married um, and had 21 children between them and displayed those children. 21? 21, I know. That's impressive, impressive for around. anyone, much less somebody who's always got a, a fellow right next door. Wow. I, I feel for their wives, I tell you. Um, 21 children's a lot. Um, but they put the, their children and even their wives on stage alongside them. So suddenly their freak persona on stage oh. is not just about we're respectable. It's, you know, we are men, we're masculine men who have families um, and who have a semblance of domesticity of which we're proud. So, you know, there's this really interesting interrelationship between freak constructions on stage and off stage. And, and I kind of, I'm interested in how those two uh, interrelate and Chang and Eng are a great um, pair of freak performers to look because you can see how their freak constructions change over time. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I think it's really perceptive way of putting it too, because it allows these individuals uh, the, the agency that really they deserve, especially in the case of this Chang and Eng who, you know, took the bull by the horns and, took what was working for other people and made it work for themselves on their own terms. It's, it's quite brilliant. That's it. And I think agency is the key word because for so long, both in the 19th century and you know, historians ever since have tended to treat freak performers as uh, freaks on stage. Um, and they've denied them their agency. They've sensationalized them uh, in their writing. Um, and what I really wanted to do was try to the best of my ability with the sources available to restore the agency of these freak performers who were actors, essentially, of their day, who right, performed right, characters right. on the stage and were incredibly shrewd and knew how to navigate this market and this terrain. And, you know, the agency of Chang and Eng becomes even more complicated when 
um, we consider Embrace Yourself, that offstage, uh, the Siamese twins, Chang and Eng, um, became slave-owning farmers um, of the American South. So, oh, so they were completely normalized. That's yeah, exactly, remarkable. Normalized wow. As slave, as slave owners. I mean, normalized, not in a good, no, but in a, what was um, sadly, historically and culturally the norm for a successful individual or, or two individuals in this case. That's it. And, you know, there's always a danger. Again, it kind of works the other way that, that we can, through kind of historical hindsight, um, diminish their agency by patronizing freak performers. And actually, I think what's interesting about Chang and Eng is, yes, they were exploited as uh, freak performers, um, but they kind of took control of their lives. They bolstered their, their own agency and their own sense of selves. Um, and then they massively complicated for the historian because they were slave owners. They had 28 slaves by 1860 and they worked them incredibly hard and traded in slaves as well. So, you know, there's this whole mess and uh, wow. morass of questions around exploitation and empowerment and agency and normalcy that kind of makes this such a fascinating uh, field of study. Oh, you're not kidding. Wow. <laughs> well, no, that that's... I, I, I'm slightly speechless just digesting all of that. You're right. It, it's, it's, um, it is a many-faceted, multi-layered case study that you've just given us. Thank, thank you so much for that. I mean, in general, you know, who, who became a performer of this type and, and how were they normally discovered? It's a great question and it, it massively um, varies. So at times you would have parents who had um, you know, children who were deemed uh, different, whether that was you know, a usually sort of physiological difference, who would often display their own children, or they would go to managers um, who would display their children, or you had managers that would go out and seek um, potential freak performers um, to, to, to be displayed. Um, and of course, you had a lot of deception as well. So, I mean, one of the things about the freak as a construct is it was often like a load of bollocks, frankly, if you excuse my language. You had kind of giant surreptitiously standing on stilts or conjoined twins who were secretly bound together by a rope. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? I mean, I was just sort of wondering, you know, what, what are the actual credentials needed to be deemed uh, an acceptable freak performer? I mean, the, the credentials varied. So you had what were known as self-made um, freaks, and they were essentially kind of uh, performers, um, sword swallowers, fire eaters, um, those who didn't have any sort of obvious physical, mental uh, abnormalities. Um, and okay. they were very popular in um, American carnivals and sideshows. So you had the self-made freaks. Then you had what were known as the uh, so-called exotic freaks, those from distant lands, you know, the Fiji cannibals or the Zulus or the Aborigines. And they were displayed on the basis of their ethnic and cultural otherness. And okay. then you had born freaks, those who were born with uh, physical abnormalities anomalies um, such as people of short stature or tall stature or fat men bearded ladies skeleton mm -hmm. men a whole rich array just those um, who looked different but those not different. not from another culture <laughs> not from another culture and then you had someone like Chang and Eng who kind of crossed uh, both those boundaries but you know the the thing about the freak was it wasn't just about kind of displaying someone who was perceived to be physically different. There was a performative element to it as well. So, you know, they were given uh, different names, the baboon lady, the elephant man, the lion-faced man. Um, they were kind of constructed through different performance routines and these exhibition pamphlets and posters. So there was a kind of cr process of creating the freak, which yeah. made them very different to people who just had disabilities. Um, and takes us into the realm of performance um, as well. So it was a process of becoming uh, a freak performer just as much as displaying someone who was uh, perceived to be physically different. Got it. And, you know, 
I wonder how much you know about the history of the fascination with these freak performers. Mm. I, I know that throughout uh, recorded history, I mean, even back to the Egyptians, there's mention of, of fools <laughs> and mm. dancing dwarves and such. I mean, we see writings about this uh, from nearly 5,000 years ago in Egypt. I, I wonder if you can trace for us some kind of chronology for where this really began in this part of the world and what the inspiration for it was. Sure. I mean, like you say, this goes back right back to the ancients, this kind of fascination with bodies deemed different. And often um, in you know, ancient cultures and civilizations, um, those uh, so-called monsters, those with um, physical difference were killed at birth or perceived yeah. to sort of be evil spirits or, um, you know, signaling um, malign uh, forces. But in terms of the display of um, freak performers, I often kind of root it in two very paradoxical places. One is these ancient traveling fairs, um, which had been around in Britain since almost the Norman conquest, 1066, and certainly the 12th century. And they were traveling oh. fairs, itinerant shows, um, where people would market merriment and goods. So you would display, um, or you'd have a series of displays, menageries, people, you know, Zulus from distant lands, performers, circuses, acrobatics, alongside kind of the trade in goods. And you've got a long um, tradition, particularly from the, ninth, uh, from the 17th century, of European kings and queens who would essentially collect People of short stature, giants, even um, uh, conjoined twins um, to kind of bolster um, their own image um, uh, in relation to, to other monarchs. And it was a whole big trade. You know, dwarves, believe it or not, were sold bread and swapped throughout. Um, bread? Bread, oh specifically. Um, yeah, throughout you know, the, the, the courts of Europe in the 17th century. And in my book, I talk about one particular um, dwarf performer. I say performer. Um, he was a sort of court pet, if you like, that was in the, the court of King Charles I um, and was initially served, believe it or not, um, in a pie to King Charles I's wife, Henrietta <laughs> Yep, you heard me right, a pie. <laughs> Uh, you mean like somebody jumping out of a cake? Literally jumping out of a cake. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up, by the way. I know no, you can't. That's it, something. Um, you know, the, the, the uh, truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> um, but you had and this. What? <laughs> so they, they, he was handed a knife. Now be careful. <laughs> not, not, yeah, you're not far off. It was, um, there was this massive banquet that was being held to honor King Charles I and his 15-year-old wife, Queen, Queen Henrietta Maria. Um, and, you know, at this banquet, there was food and gifts galore and entertainments and theatricals. And at the climax of this banquet, two uh, footmen enter um, blowing trumpets um, to signal the arrival of this massive pie, which is brought in and placed before the 15-year-old queen, who kind of stares rather uh, bemused at this pie. And as if it's in labor, <sighs> She sees it suddenly moving and out pops um, a seven-year-old, 18 inches tall um, boy named Jeffrey Hudson, who's wearing this miniature suit of armor. And he kind of marches up and down this banqueting table, waving flags. How returning bizarre. To the and she's the, you know, he's the queens to keep. Um, and that was, that's kind of the start of Jeffrey Hudson's story. It gets way stranger than that. Um, but he then goes and lives with Queen Henrietta Maria and King Charles I and joins their collection of um, their people collection. and the giant porter as well. Um, fascinating, fascinating. And the story about Geoffrey Hudson um, and also the, the one about Chang'anang makes me want to ask, you know, in general, what were the prospects for upward mobility for these people? Obviously, those are somewhat exceptional cases, but your average person like them what, what was the likelihood that they they do okay and maybe even improve their lot in life by participating in this um, entertainment sphere? It's, it's so hard to make generalizations. I mean, it really did depend. So you had cases where, you know, Chang and Eng um, ultimately actually did very well for themselves. 
there are other performers um probably heard of uh, general tom thumb oh um, yeah yeah so he he made uh, a hell of a lot of money uh, displaying himself um alongside pt barnum um and yeah he was kind of thrust on stage four years old in the 1840s and by 1860s he owned his own property a yacht um and a mansion as well um so he was one of those cases where um the freak show provided a form of of social mobility and you know the other thing that's worth bearing in mind is if you're a person of short stature if you're someone who's got a physical difference in the 19th century your your outlook is pretty bleak um you face dependency on family or your community incarceration in a workhouse and the freak show often functioned as a means for these individuals to become active economic agents to earn some money um, and do well. The thing about the freak show is you know, everyone kind of thinks it's this weird, marginal, slightly strange thing, whereas actually it was incredibly popular. Um, and one of the ways in which freak showmen ensured the popularity of their show was to offer a diverse range of um, entrance fees. So you could have freak shows where, uh, as they used to write, workmen and tradesmen were charged um, any six pence, um, whereas the middle classes might be charged uh, a shilling. Um, so you had this different range of prices. Um, similarly, in America, you know, shows of 50 cents, where a range of different people could attend, including the working classes. Um, and, you know, that made the freak show very competitive in relationship yeah, to Yeah, it other. sounds really canny. <laughs> yeah, really canny. Um, and it made it a kind of cross-class form of entertainment um, that was accessible to, to everyone. So, John, you've told us a lot about the shows and, and the experience of being in the show. I'd love to know if the rehearsals were a, a big part of this or did they wing it most of the time? So you had uh, very scripted shows and you had shows that were rather kind of you know, just thrown together and, and the key was to get, get members uh, of the public into, into the exhibition. So it could massively vary. Got it. Well, that makes sense given the, the different natures of these shows. And you had mentioned that people would tour, right? that these shows would tour around. What would that have looked like and what would the, the living arrangements of the performers have been in that case? Well, so usually what would happen is you would have, you'd have a kind of outfit, a touring outfit, if you like, and the manager would usually travel ahead of the, of the tour group, going to different um, locations, cities, towns, villages, hamlets, and setting up the show. So ensuring that the town was plastered with advertisement, that they had a good venue, um, that they spoke to the press and ensured that the press were aware that the freak performer um, was about to enter town and the freak performer would travel behind uh, the manager or the advanced agent um, and usually they travel in a wagon um, often an, an enclosed wagon so you know they weren't too exposed to the public as they were traveling um, oh, right and they, and they want to be secret right you have to pay to see this yeah exactly <laughs> exactly you've got to pay to see um, and they would travel probably with hired help um, and uh, they would arrive at a destination, again, usually in, in secrecy, they would be uh, ferried off to some form of accommodation, whether that was in a local inn or hotel, um, and that's tended to be how they travelled, but, you know, massively varied. So when General Tom Thumb, aka Charles Stratton, travelled, he was joined by his parents. Uh, his dad used to act as a ticket operator for the shows, um, he had a private tutor that would give him lessons in the evening. Um, so he was kind of a bit more cared for, whereas Chang and Eng, for example, didn't quite have the same uh, level of support. And, um, and this, was, this was hard going. This was not easy. Um, but at the same time, if you were traveling in Europe, um, one of my kind of uh, favorite, if I can use the term favorite, uh, freak performers, uh, Lady <laughs> Julia. You can. <laughs> can I use that? Fine. Um, <laughs> She would sort of travel uh, with circuses as part of a big circus 
uh, um, group or she'd travel on trains and she'd, she'd wear this um, sort of face covering veil because um, her face was what made the money. She was a, a bearded lady. Um, and so she would take the trains, uh, which were, you know, spreading um, in the 19th century. So different ways of travel, um, ferries and boats being very common as well. Um, and it really did depend on the status of the freak performer. We've talked a lot about the fine line between entertainment and exploitation and and also the possibility that these performers often enough seem to have found to inject a bit of agency and, and take control of at least part of the, you know, the financial outcome of this, this um, performing world that they found themselves in. Uh, I wonder if you see any relation in this, in the 19th century, to what we might call the exploitation for pay that exists in popular media today, you know, influencer culture, reality television, things like the Here Comes Honey Boo Boo. Mm, yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, they mirror each other very well because, you know, at the core of, of the freak show are these tensions between exploitation and empowerment um, and coercion and choice and depending on you know which historian or whoever you ask everyone has different views of this um but i do think there is a sense in which you know this pay for exploitation this this monetizing of uh, difference and parading often the bewildered or the unfortunate for the purposes of amusement and profit um was you know a central part of the freak show and a central part of um, you know, contemporary popular culture today. Additional to, to which, you know, the freak performers, and this is often not really uh, fully understood, but they were like celebrities of their day. They were kind of the Kim Kardashians of their generation. Um, and the freak show kind of exposed them um, to uh, public renown, public applause, Many of them, and we haven't touched on this, but were patronized by the kings and queens and even presidents um, of Europe and America. Um, and they were incredibly well known. So they became, some of them, successful on the back of this form of entertainment, which could be exploitative um, and is not dissimilar uh, to you know, what we see in the case of, for example, Honey Boo Boo Child. Um, so there's definite uh, comparisons there between the two, and I think it's a, an important one to bear in mind. Yeah, yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, and I mean, I think the Kardashians began maybe in a in a position of power that some of these freak performers of the time did not. But I'm really fascinated by your comparison because, you know, I think we we hear all of this. Oh, poor poor little rich girl and I, I put something up on Instagram and, and everyone's canceling me. I, I, they're turning on me. My fan base is turning on me. Yeah. And it, it's a little hard sometimes to feel the sympathy. Um, in a way, I, I, I think I can feel a bit more empathetic for some of these individuals who simply were trying to make the best of a situation that, you know, they were not beginning from a position of strength. No. Absolutely. And, you know, a number of them, Charles Stratton, uh, a case in point, you know, he was four years old when he was thrust on stage, um, you know, essentially a toddler. He was six years old when he was taken uh, from America to the UK for a three year European tour. And he was six years old when he found international stardom. He was in many ways one of the, the world's child first. star. <laughs> he was a child star and one of the first international celebrities. And this was someone who was he met Queen Victoria on three separate occasions um, and she absolutely fell in love uh, with General Tom Thumb and even wrote um, things in her diary, in her private diary. If I can recall correctly, she, she wrote when she first saw him in March 1844, he was the greatest curiosity I or indeed anybody ever saw. Um, and wow. this was at a time when he was being displayed by P.T. Barnum you know, master manipulator, knew the media, knew how to advertise. And he really capitalized on Queen Victoria's endorsement. Um, and she met him another uh, two occasions in the 1840s. And then Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle literally became this revolving door for different freak performers throughout her reign. Really? Yeah, really? Oh, tell freak. me more about that. <laughs> That's fascinating. 
Well, she was a massive freak fancier, if uh, you'll excuse the term. Um, she met, after meeting General Tom Thumb in, the 18, in 1844, she met German dwarves, Dutch dwarves, Scottish dwarves. She met Maximo and Bartola, who were billed as the Aztec children. Um, she met Millie and Christine, the conjoined twins. She met different giants. Um, she met so-called exotic freaks. And what was crucial was that, and this was actually thanks to Barnum, her endorsement of the freak show massively popularized this form of entertainment. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, she was the queen at the time, for goodness sake. (laughs) It's the queen of England. Suddenly, you know, the freak show was this, you know, in prior to the 1840s, it was still associated with those traveling fairs, which were licentious and vice-ridden. But when Tom Thumb met Queen Victoria and was suddenly described in the press as the pet of the palace and the queen's dwarf, suddenly it gave his show and the freak show greater respectability and the middle classes and the working classes flocked and the press even described a deformitomania that, that took Deformitomania. Over. Deformitomania. It even had a neologism. <laughs> That's it. An obsession with deformity. And from the 1840s, thanks to Tom Thumb meeting Queen Victoria and Barnum's uh, public publicizing of that meeting, uh, you had different freak performers that tried to wide, uh, ride the wave of Tom Thumb's success and descended onto, onto London and actually created this real tension between what some perceived as low culture in the form of the freak show and you know high culture i mean you know we're a nation of shakespeare after all what are we doing gawping at uh, freaks of nature and actually what that kind of tension between high and low culture uh, really exploded in 1846 so you have tom thumb who comes you know six years old comes to england in 1844 meets the queen le- receives loads and loads of of guests and applause he travels around europe meets the kings and queens of france spain um and brussels uh belgium even and when he returns to the uk in 1846 he is actually put on display at the egyptian hall where chang and eng performed ah remember that one and down the corridor so the egyptian hall had had the great room as i described earlier but it also had exhibition rooms Um, upstairs and down the corridor you had Charles Stratton, General Tom Thumb, the American dwarf who was um, displaying his body um, to the delight of the crowd and just further down the corridor was this English painter named Benjamin Robert Hayden who was displaying his works of historical art. Now these were supposed to be edifying and serious high culture and audiences had a choice. They could pay to see Tom Thumb, they could pay to see Robert Hayden, or they could pay to see both. And overwhelmingly, of course, they chose the, the freak show rather than a boring display of artwork. Oh, and um, not even both. Not even both, no. <laughs> Everyone thought- oh, Poor Hayden, he was probably sad. <laughs> um, and he was completely ruined by this. He had quite a big ego. He thought he, he was on a mission to educate and elevate the tastes of the great British public. Um, and no one came to his show. And he actually committed suicide shortly after oh. and cited Tom Thumb as the reason for his ruin. And he sudden- blamed Tom Thumb for his suicide? Thumb. He said that everyone was going to pay to see this Yankee dwarf oh in the coffers of this American showman. And here I am, a great British artist, presenting my elevated work to the English people, and they're not interested. Um, and he what a guilt him. tripper. What Get over yourself, tripper. Hayden. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he's kind wow. of Nabok as well because, uh, yeah, you know, he killed himself. And suddenly the press then kind of turned on General Tom Thumb. Um, and they the did? Times, oh, yeah. The Times in particular was, uh, they said that I can't quite remember the quote, but they referred to him as a disgusting dwarf. And, um, you know, they, they chastised the British public who would pay to see this American dwarf over a great English artist. But Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I think people voted with their cash and where they, where they decided to report in the Egyptian theatre. <laughs> it wasn't Tom Thumb's fault that they chose him. How no, amazing. It certainly wasn't the seven-year-old Tom Thumb's fault. Um, Clearly. And at any point, 
were any, you know, sort of legal or um, governmental protections put into place to protect performers in these freak shows, um, if not in the Victorian era itself, any time later that you know of? Was there recognition that there was a certain amount of exploitation going on with the likes of P.T. Barnum? It, it's called, I mean, there were some protections. So when, for example, um, uh, a lady named Sarah Bartman, who was billed as a Hottentot Venus, um, was shipped from Cape Town to, uh, to the UK in 1810. Um, and she was put on display, um, also in Piccadilly actually, cost two shillings to see her. Um, and she didn't speak English. And there were perceptions that she was being uh, mistreated and she didn't have agency in the show. And they, a bunch of uh, humanitarians um, objected to her exhibition. I mean, a rather kind of dubious contract was produced, which claimed that no, she was a willing agent. Uh, she wasn't a slave. Um, and the show continued. Um, so there were kind of protections in place and people were sensitive to that. Um, and, you know, showmen, one reason why showmen works hard to present their freak performers as willing agents. I don't actually know if there are any official regulations in place in the modern era. I, I wonder if, if, if you do, John, but, uh, you know, there's certainly a sense among the general public of, you asked for it. The people who truck off of the benefit of being different, of being larger than life in the public eye today. Yeah, I mean, in the in the UK, we've had it wasn't too long ago where a, uh, a gentleman named Stephen Diamond um, had appeared on the Jeremy Kyle show, which kind of a bit like you know reality TV, very like Jerry Springer. Um, and a week afterwards, uh, he committed suicide, and that has that really brought some of these questions to the fore uh, today. Um, and there's a, an investigation that is being done, and I, I don't think they've published their findings yet, about the kind of roles and responsibility of producers and these reality TV shows in how they care for um, the people who they put on their screens. If you look at this form of, you know, these reality TVs, what are some of the staple ingredients? You've got voyeurism, you've got spectacle, you've got titillation, you've got this relationship between the public persona and the private persona. The public's persona is perpetuated through Twitter and Instagram and all these things, these sort of superficial mediums. Now, all of that was in the Victorian freak show. Voyeurism, spectacle, titillation and the public personas, these public freak personas that were spread through posters and bill posters and exhibition pamphlets. Um, so, you know, the ingredients are very similar. Um, you know, the freak show kind of lives on. It's metamorphosized, um, but it's, uh, the freak show as an institution might have died, but its legacy uh, lives on, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, I think you just encapsulated our entire conversation in a really elegant few sentences there, John. Uh, thank you so much. This has been so eye-opening. I have to say I was really excited to talk to you about this topic because it's inherently interesting and it's not... It's just not something you read about every day or so one thinks until we start thinking a little bit and finding some surprising and often for me at least, uncomfortable parallels with uh, pervasive media today. Thank you so much. Pleasure, absolute pleasure. Victorian age entertainment may seem foreign to us residents of the 21st century, but the differences in showbiz then and now are uncomfortably thin when you take a really critical look. Just consider the familiarity of blurred lines between exploitation and showmanship of shock and art, fame and ruin. As we've learned, while Victorian freak performers often were treated as props to be gawked at, poked and prodded for profit, many in fact capitalized on their public appeal and fame to assert independence and agency over their own lives and livelihoods. When business is good, business is good. 
And for audiences, there will always be something achingly familiar in gazing at unrelatably different bodies or personalities on a stage or more likely today on an array of TV, computer, and phone screens. Whether they're Siamese twins, ladies with lush beards, or just out of touch celebrities, we all can relate to the drama and pathos of being different from most everyone else. As John so poignantly puts it, the freak show lives on. And it's society who casts the performers. As always, thanks for listening. You can follow today's guest, Dr. John Wolf, on Twitter at Dr. John Wolf. That's D R J O H N W O O L F. And catch his latest book. The Wonders, The Extraordinary Performers Who Transformed the Victorian Age, wherever you get your reads. Have an idea for a Working Overtime episode? A question about how we make the show or just want to say hello and share your thoughts? Connect with us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries. We'd love to hear from you. And you might just find your question mentioned in an episode. Until next time, thanks for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan LaLiberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Overtime Series. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe.